Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Roisin. And welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. This podcast is all about how improving your physical fitness can help support you on your very own fertility journey. I'm a personal trainer who specializes in training women with fertility problems. I myself have PCOS and have had two beautiful boys, and I'm on a mission to help you do the same. Before we get into it, we will be discussing adult themes such as where do babies come from, pregnancy loss and bereavement. We may also be sweary from time to time. We are optimistic, lighthearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that. In this week's show, I had the honour of speaking with Andrea Trigo and hearing all about her incredible infertility story. And it truly is a remarkable example of how you can turn a tragic diagnosis into an opportunity to help others. I am delighted to welcome Andrea Trigo to the show. Andrea is CEO and founder of Enhanced Fertility. She is a TEDx speaker and Innovate UK Women of Innovation Award winner. She's also an author and a nurse consultant. Andrea is also an infertility warrior. She was diagnosed with infertility at age 17 when she found out that she had Mayer Rokitansky Kusterhauser MRKH syndrome, where the uterus and the vagina don't form properly. Andrea will also be at the Fertility Show this year as an exhibitor with her company Enhanced Fertility. Andrea, welcome to the show. Hi, Maria. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. You're very welcome. Could you just start by telling us your own story? Yes. So my story started a long time ago, over 20 years ago, when I was just a very young girl, about 17 years of age. And just like every other girl, we are expecting our periods to come when we get to 14, 15, 16. And I could see that my body was developing normally. So my breasts were growing. I had more of a waist. But I could see my cousins who were my age having periods, but my periods never came. So my parents took me to the doctors when I was 15, and they just said, look, some girls just start a bit later in life, and that's absolutely fine. Wait another year. So one year goes by, and I go again to the doctor at 16, and they say, wait another year. Some girls just start later in life. But when I went to the doctor at 17, that was already a bit uh, suspicious. Why aren't periods coming? And that's when a series of tests and investigations started So I had lots of blood tests to check my hormones, which were normal. I had scans. I was put on the pill to see if I would trigger a bleed, which didn't happen. And I had just lots of x-rays and things like that. And it was only when I went to a gynecologist who tried to do a vaginal examination that that was very, very painful. And I wasn't expecting that to be painful because in my head, all women go to the gynecologist. It's a normal procedure. It should not be painful. But when she tried to perform the examination, I remember it as if it were today. It was very painful. And she just asked me to get dressed so she could talk to me. And she said, Andrea, I think you were born without a uterus in the vagina. And I was so shocked. The only thing that I could say in that moment was I want my mom. And my mom was in the waiting area. She was holding my baby sister in her arms. My sister is 15 years younger than me. So she she was, I don't know, about two at the time. 
very young. And my mom came into the room and the doctor said the same thing. We need to run more investigations, but I think Andrea might have been born without a uterus and a vagina. And the next thing I said was, does that mean I cannot have children? And she said, I don't think you will. And I asked the same question, does that mean I will not be able to have children? As if I were expecting a different answer. From that moment on, everything was a blur. We were crying a lot on the way home. We explained what had happened to my dad, who was sort of the strength that I didn't have, that my mom didn't have. And my dad just said, we will fix it. So this doctor who was in the private sector referred me to the National Health Service, where I again underwent a series of very unpleasant examinations by other doctors because it's such a, a rare diagnosis that they couldn't believe that that was it. In waiting rooms with very little privacy with doctors, junior doctors who are less knowledgeable, trying to examine me. And because externally everything is normal, they they kept trying to perform a vaginal examination, to insert their fingers and a speculum. And that was very, very painful. They tried that in three different occasions, three different dates. And I was always crying because of the pain. And I was told that I was not letting myself be examined. And for that reason, they were suggesting that I would have the examination under general anesthetic. And by then I accepted that because it was so painful. I just didn't want to go through that again. So that general anesthetic, what it implied was that they were going to put a camera inside my abdomen to see what they could see inside. That in itself was a very surreal experience as a 17-year-old going to a gynae ward in a hospital where most women who are close to menopause having hysterectomies, other kinds of problems. And everyone was very curious, why was I so young in that ward? But that was the procedure where they figured out that the uterus was not there. And this whole organ was missing. And I've spent more than three years going from doctor to doctor, having all of these examinations, and this whole organ was not there. The vagina was not formed but I did have ovaries. So that sort of explained why I had hormones. When I did blood tests, everything was normal, why my breasts were forming and all these female characteristics were there because the the hormones were there. That was the first time I saw on paper that I had MRKH. Wow. I have so many questions and thank you for sharing your story. How does it actually happen? Where does MRKH come from? So MRKH comes from the embryonary stage. So when we are just an embryo and we are in our mom's wombs, all our organs are forming and the uterus and the top third of the vagina is formed by what we call the Mullerian ducts. They start on each side of our pelvis and they grow and meet in the middle to form the uterus and then they go down to form the vagina. In MRKH, what happens is that these Mullerian ducts never merged, so there is no uterus, or sometimes they merge, but they fail to fully adjust to each other. So some women might have 
a uterus that is sort of split in half. But most commonly, there is no uterus, there will be no cervix, and there will be no top third of the vagina. For that reason, most women with MRKH, they need to have a vaginal reconstruction in order to have intercourse. And there are several techniques for that. But I ended up having surgery as well very shortly after that initial diagnosis. And that was my attempt to feel somewhat normal because when we're so young, we just want to feel normal like everyone else. Being different is not cool at that age. No, I mean, being 17 is hard enough, you know. Exactly. Just kind of on that note, I'm glad you said about the ovaries because I was wondering about the hormones and the blood test and I did wonder about that. So that kind of makes sense. Other than the kind of absence of periods, looking back now, were there any other symptoms or was that it? No other symptoms. And I think that's why the average age to be diagnosed with MRKH is around 16, 17, because it happens one in 5,000. No one is expecting this to, to be a diagnosis. Most doctors have not even heard about it. And because everything else is normal, we don't have any other symptoms. It's just a lack of periods. So when they gave you the diagnosis, obviously the first thing you asked was, am I going to be able to have a family? When you'd had chance to process a little bit, what did you think that meant for your fertility and then a, a possible future family? Yeah, I think at the time that was the immediate concern because I come from a very large family. My grandma has five children. All of them are married, many cousins. I have great memories of family holidays, everyone going to the beach, everyone celebrating Christmas, a big table with 30 people. So I have great, great memories. And even though I wasn't trying to conceive at that young age, I always thought that it was going to happen. So it was guaranteed. And I think that is, many people can relate to that. We just expect fertility to be there. We expect pregnancy to happen easily when we want to. I think I started noticing that that was a problem that I was going to have to live with when after my surgery to reconstruct my vagina, I wanted to deal with what could be dealt with, and that was a reconstruction. But after that, there was something that I would never be able to, to deal with, which was my inability to carry my own children. And that's when it hit me pretty hard. Um, and by then, I was already a first-year student at my nursing school. And it was incredibly hard to deal with placements where I had to see other women give birth or to deal with pregnant women, to deal with babies. But I've realized over time that this pain is going to last forever and the triggers that I had at the time, I learned to cope with them, but there will always be new triggers as I grow older. For example, I'm now in my 40s. My cousins have children already. So seeing them with their children is a reminder of what I cannot have. Seeing my grandma with their children is something that I'm not able to give my parents. So those are very specific pains that 20 years ago I didn't think about them, but they come out of nowhere and they just hit you and you never know when they're going to come. Yeah. So now I just, I, I'm preempting, you know, as I grow older, you know, 
my friends will have grandchildren and all of that. So I'm just preempting that it's going to be a life of coping with the loss of not having my own children. And it is a loss. I think that's something a lot of people can relate to because that diagnosis it isn't just in that moment. For a lot of people, it's a loss of everything that you've just described. And I wondered, so, you know, you're dating and when you're dating, you're now husband, Frank, CTO, co-founder of Enhanced Fertility. How on earth do you bring this up? You know, when did you share with him your diagnosis? It's such a good question because it's a common concern of women who are diagnosed very young with MRKH or POI or any other problem that affects fertility very young. When we're that age, we haven't felt the romantic love yet from someone else, right? So there's a lot of questions. Am I woman enough? Is anyone going to love me and accept me for me? Those questions of when do I share are really important and everyone wonders when should I share? Is it on a first date? Would it be awkward? At what point do you say when you've already developed some feelings? So for me, I've always been very open about my journey because when I had my surgery to reconstruct my vagina at the time, of course, there was no Facebook. There wasn't anything like that. There was no way of finding other women who were going through it. But I went on TV in Portugal where I was diagnosed and they did a news piece about me. I had my face blurred at the time, but somehow lots of people did recognize my voice. As a result of that, many women from across the country reached out to my doctor and we ended up creating our group where we were writing physical letters before email. And so I had a very good opinion about sharing. Whenever I was dating someone, I would always share right in the beginning. And my view was, I'm going to be happy no matter what. If this person does not accept me, there's no point wasting my time with this person. So when I met Frank, I was already much older. We've been together for a while now. But when I met him, I was much better resolved in my head about what had happened to me. I had written a a book telling my story. So I sort of told him that I couldn't have children. And he said immediately that that was not a problem to him. There was immediate acceptance. And and then I gave him my book and he had a read. So a very public (laughs) description of everything that I've just told you. Yeah, it was just pure 100% acceptance. And it was just beautiful because I think it's, Sometimes we settle for less because we think we are not deserving of love because of X, Y, or Z. And feeling that unconditional love is possible. So I think that that's an important message for anyone else who is being diagnosed or maybe someone who has been through a divorce or a separation and is now infertile and is wondering, can I have another relationship? Yes, absolutely, you can. I'm so grateful you shared that with people because so many people worry and they do worry about telling people and they worry about being unlovable and they will settle. Can I also just say, I love the fact that you just gave him your book. (laughs) Just read this by the second day and then we'll be okay. Exactly. If you have any questions, we can talk about it. I absolutely love that. Following on from that, how did you work through all of this and see a positive way forward? Because you said that you accepted yourself, which I absolutely love, and you absolutely rightly should have 
done so, but how did you get from being 17 and the diagnosis to working through this and seeing a really positive way forward? Yeah, it wasn't overnight. So I don't think that roller coaster to reach acceptance doesn't happen very quickly. But I think that is even a reality for many women who are being diagnosed in their 20s and 30s. Maybe they haven't been through any major trauma that allowed them to develop the coping skills. So for me, what I remember very well was being very young, right in the beginning and crying in my room. And I was crying and asking, why me? And that was happening quite a lot. And I think it's a question that many of us also ask, why me? Why is this happening to me? In that moment, that precise day, I felt a very strong energy inside me. And I don't know where it came from, but I've made a very strong decision where I've decided if I can cope with this, there is nothing in life that I will not be able to cope with. And it was a shift moment. I didn't know how I was going to cope, but I was so determined to be happy, regardless of my circumstances, that I decided that studying, marrying, getting a house, whatever those normal society things that society tells you to do, I was only going to do them if they made me happy. And that sort of allowed me to be a nurse and take risk in business, take risk in relationships, because I was so determined to cope. And no matter what challenge it comes my way, my mindset is always, I coped with this huge trauma of infertility. If I can do that, there's nothing that is more difficult than this. So heads on, I can deal with that. And it was only, I say, maybe it took me 15 years. It's like you were kind of reframing the situation that you were in. Yeah. I like that you share that it took 15 years and I like that you share that it's a trauma because it is a trauma. I wanted to ask you, does it not trigger you all the time? Are you okay in the space? How do you cope with that? I don't see any other way of feeling fulfilled professionally because I could do any other job as a nurse. But fulfillment comes from three different things. One, something that we are good at, and I think I dealt quite well with the coping of this, something that allows us to give back and something that allows us to grow. And it's only by touching my pain every single day that I grow. So I don't get triggered every day, but I do feel my patients' pains. I can relate to that makes them feel a bit more understood. Exciting news. The Fertility Show Live is back, returning to London's Olympia on the 20th and 21st of May, 2023. The Fertility Show is a one-of-a-kind event that brings together top fertility experts, clinics and doctors, all under one roof. Over 70 exhibitors from the UK and overseas, including clinics, advice groups, Charities, acupuncturists, dietitians, nutritional and lifestyle advisors, holistic therapists, and more. With the opportunity to meet over 15 clinics from home and abroad, you can get all your questions answered, take home brochures, and those all-important contact details. I still remember my first visit to the show, feeling nervous and like I was outing myself. But once there, I find a supportive community that made me feel less alone and getting to speak with specialists that you might have to wait months to see at a clinic was a game changer. It's a safe, discreet and welcoming event that provides valuable information for anyone 
who wants to have a baby. So mark your calendars for the 20th and 21st of May 2023 and join us at the Fertility Show Live in London's Olympia. We'll be there too, so don't miss out on this incredible opportunity to find out everything you need for your fertility journey. You're moving through life, you've got your husband. Could you now go on to tell us about enhanced fertility? I think it was around that time when I looked back and I noticed I managed to cope rather well. And I was a nurse for a long time. I was a nurse putting people to sleep, doing, you know, anesthesia, (laughs) a bit different to fertility. I had a business in that area that I still have, you know, very respected by my peers, but something was still missing. So there was a lot of internal work to understand what is going to give me these professional fulfillments. And I've realized it had to be in the area of fertility as a way to grow beyond my pain, as a way to give back because I had coped rather well. So I wanted other people to, if they could learn with me, maybe they would cope much faster as well. And just contributing to general society. That's when the journey started, but it has taken us a few years of looking to realize that enhanced fertility was the place where I felt most comfortable. So we have a company where we are helping people be diagnosed much faster. Because just like it took me over three years to be diagnosed, there's many people with many other fertility problems and on average is taking them 3.2 years. What we do is at-home blood testing, sperm testing, scanning, everything that helps both women and men be diagnosed instead of a few years, just in a few weeks, so that they can start treatment much faster. Seeing other people have their babies gives meaning to my own journey. And over the last 18 years, we've brought to the world or contributed to bringing to the world eight new babies. That is my ultimate fulfillment and gives meaning to an otherwise so silly situation and difficult diagnosis. What you're doing is incredible. What conditions would people be testing for if they came to enhanced fertility? We're trying to identify every single possible problem. We have a clinical history questionnaire that has been validated and has over 90 data points. We're looking at both male and female and everything from physical problems to hormonal problems to environmental factors, every single thing that could be potentially affecting. And of course, the at-home blood testing is an important part because many people who are being assessed with this clinical history testing hadn't done that because they didn't have access through their GPs. So that's why we brought that to the market to make it easier for people to test. And hormones control every single aspect of reproduction in women and men. So we want to have that as well. We pair that in women with a scan as well, because we can't really have a full assessment without a pelvic scan. And in males, we a sperm analysis as well. So it's a very complete data set. And often we work with clinics as well. So patients who already know they need to start treatment and we do the whole set of testing that is needed from thyroid to fertility hormones, to serologies, blood typing, all of that. So we want people really to get the answers because many people are not able to access the care through their GPs. 
sometimes GPs don't know how to interpret the results or order the blood testing in the wrong time of the cycle. We know that it's expensive in the private sector. So we're trying to make it a bit cheaper, a bit faster. All our testing always includes a consultation as well. So you understand your results. I think that's pretty essential. So you understand your next steps. Uh, That's what we've been doing. It's really incredible. And again, the thing that we're always talking about on this show is it's this tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. It shouldn't take three and a bit years for a diagnosis. Like you said, you've had eight babies so far. It's an amazing achievement. I was going to ask, is there a gene that could be tested for the condition you have? And then I know that you talked about women having a scan. Would the scan be the thing that would allow you to see if they have a uterus? When we look at MRKH, I have had pelvic scans and they did not diagnose the lack of uterus. And that is quite shocking. So when I looked back at those reports saying that I did have a normal uterus, I was quite shocked because, of course, I don't. And my only explanation is that maybe the technician was not experienced in MRKH. Maybe he was visualizing the bladder and thinking that he was looking at the uterus. When it comes to genetic testing, it's not a genetic condition. So the only thing that shows is an MRI or a laparoscopy. If we look at endometriosis, for example, we're thinking about a laparoscopy as well, but there's more and more AI tools. There's always going to be advances. And of course, the medical profession tries to make it the least invasive possible for you to get your diagnosis. But in certain conditions, it's still difficult to get that diagnosis without actually a surgery to having a look inside you. Absolutely. And a lot of my clients have endometriosis. They have to have a laparoscopy. We're very mm-hmm. familiar with Wanda. You know, we, we know Wanda well. And that's why endometriosis also takes about 10 years to be diagnosed. The symptoms are dismissed. There's no other tests that are definitive. And until they're able to have that surgery, it's been so long. It makes me so angry. You know, I'm trying to keep it in because mm-hmm. I'm talking to you, but it makes me so <laughs> angry that it takes 10 years for women who are in chronic pain. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. You must have so much data now and so much information. Are there any issues that you kind of see as a recurring problem? For example, low testosterone in men. Are there any trends that you're now beginning to pick up on? That's a really interesting question. I think lots of people who are coming to us who are not trying to conceive but are curious. We do see some problems with high prolactin levels, and this tends to happen when women are a bit stressed. So we see that, and that might have to do with our day-to-day lives. That We almost don't notice that that has become the new norm for us. We see a lot of women with irregular periods that then have changes in their LH values. Some do have their AMH values as well. And in men, definitely the low testosterone, because it's associated with more sedentary lifestyles. If they don't eat healthy, if they don't exercise a lot, testosterone is going to go down and then sperm is not going to be normal. You also have on the other side, men doing a lot of exercise and taking steroids, who also is an endocrine disruptor. And then your body thinks it already has testosterone. It doesn't produce testosterone. (laughs) You know, we see it all. Yeah, you must see so many things. It does seem that fertility is moving into tech in a massive way, because like you've Mm -hmm. said, it makes it quicker, it makes it more affordable. You've got incredible data. What are your plans then moving forward? What does the future hold for you? 
our new project is in the area of using our AI to suggest a diagnosis to the clinicians, because we know that when we go to the doctor and they give us a diagnosis, on average, that diagnosis is only 65% accurate, which is not great. No. Of course, we are using a model to make sure that we can improve that diagnostic accuracy up to 95% by using a method of collective diagnosis. So we have several doctors agreeing that a patient profile corresponds to this diagnosis, and it's only when they all agree that is tagged on the system. And in the future, we'll be able to link that to treatment outcomes as well. So making sure that your treatment is a bit more standardized, because at the moment, depending on which doctor you go to, it looks like they all say different things and they suggest different treatment pathways. We want to make things a bit clearer. Like if you have a Google Maps and you enter destination baby, you will get the same result and the possible routes to get there. I love this. This is really incredible, the work you're doing. It's going to change people's lives. Based on everything you've said today, I am sure people will want to find you and get in touch with you. I know you're going to be at the Fertility Show, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Where can people find you both at the Fertility Show and also online? On our website, www.efp.clinic. If you search Enhanced Fertility as well on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, we're everywhere. And at the Fertility Show, we'll be on 10D32. Come find us. We have a huge discount for everyone attending the Fertility Show. And I I just wanted to, to leave a final note because sometimes the show can be a bit overwhelming. There's lots of information. I wanted just to tell people not to feel pressured by anyone they talk to. There's lots of positive stories that come out of that. And I remember my sister-in-law who attended the fertility show last year with her husband. They had been trying for over a year. They had a few meetings with some of the clinics that were exhibiting. And she was crying at that Mm -hmm. point. We diagnosed her with a short luteal phase after doing our test which is a common problem with a very simple solution, which is progesterone supplements. So my sister-in-law gave birth two months ago, and we have a brand new baby in the family. It's only now that I'm getting ready for the fertility show in a few weeks that I'm remembering, but she was there feeling hopeless, and now we have a baby. A lot can happen in a year from attending this show and taking action. I'm so happy that there's a baby now, but you're absolutely right. It can be a really overwhelming day. So just take your time. We will put all of the contact information in our show notes so people can come and find you at the show, find you on the website and hopefully get the help they need. Thank you so much for coming on. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much, Maria. It was a pleasure speaking with you. What an amazing woman, so determined. And I think one of the keys to her success in dealing with what would be a devastating diagnosis for anyone was the fact that she wasn't going to settle. She was going to make the best of the hand that she was dealt. She truly is an inspiration to us all. Absolutely. And it was a privilege to speak with her. So Maria, what will we be speaking about next week? 
Well, following on from our discussion with Andrea on Tuesday, I'm focusing on five signs of infertility that you may never have heard of before. And on Friday, I am very excited to talk to Laura Briggs, CEO of The Fertility Show, which is taking place in London on May 20th and 21st. So tune in to hear all about the show and how it can help you on your own trying to conceive journey. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week and please rate, comment and really importantly share with your friends, especially our Trying to Conceive sisters. You never know who's struggling and may need that little bit of extra help. This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. We strongly recommend that you consult with your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a Worth a Listen production.